Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, brought to you by Canon Plus. This week's episode is a conversation between Pastor Douglas Wilson and Dr. Stephen Wolf about Dr. Wolf's new book, The Case for Christian Nationalism. Click the link in the show notes to pre order the book today. Greetings, I'm Douglas Wilson. I'm here with Stephen Wolf. Uh, Stephen has got a book coming out with Canon Press, The Case for Christian Nationalism, which we're going to talk about. Welcome. Good to have you here. Uh, I've turned in a manuscript uh, to Canon, which they say they're going to publish, called Mere Christendom. And one of the things we're going to be doing is discussing whether these are adjacent projects, overlapping projects, the same project. What, what are we talking about? Um, so The Case for Christian Nationalism. Uh, could you summarize what you're doing and why that why that term? Yeah, so I, th- I think first the, the big question is what 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 does it mean? What's yeah. the definition? The uh, the common definition used today it's it's, it, it's actually a, a term of derision. It's uh, something that's negative. It's bad in itself. The, the definition itself is makes it bad. And so the question is why kind of appropriate? Why use this term in the first place? Right. And I mean, the the impulse of a of a conservative nowadays is to kind of reject whatever the left says you are. Um, but as I thought about Christian nationalism, I think, well, you know, I, I love my nation and I'm a Christian, and I want it to be Christian, a Christian <laughs> Chocolate, nation. Chocolate, peanut butter. <laughs> yeah, so it seems to fit together, and I think that the term the term Christian nationalism makes sense as uh, if you're going to describe you know a Christian nation kind of acting for itself for its own good. So that's ba- that's my very basic definition. It's just a Christian nation that is kind of self-conscious of itself as a Christian people. And they're saying to themselves, we want to arrange ourselves, order ourselves um, for our good. And that good includes not just the good of the temporal life, but also spiritual life or, or heavenly good as well. So then they arrange themselves to, to those ends. Accordingly. Yeah. So let's start with the definite, break out the definitions as Christian uh, you're operating out of the Reformed Presbyterian uh, yes. tradition, right? So Christian would include the, all the basics, the Apostles' Creed, um, confession, the basics of the gospel, the, the historicity of the death, burial, and resurrection, all of those things. That's uh, Orthodox Christian, not whitewashed Christian or veneer Christian or nominal Christian, but the real thing, believing the, believing it. Right. I, I mean, there is there's an element of, I mean, I do argue for cultural Christianity as well. Um, we can get into that. So yeah. I think there, there will be, in a Christian nation, there will be like a nominal Christians or hip, hypocritical people. Um, but it's, but yeah, the, it's the, the, as a whole, the nation as a whole will identify itself as, as a Christian nation. And yeah, and then those those they will affirm the the, the standard doc, doctrines of orthodoxy. All right. So you're not talking about um, an etiolated Christianity uh, liberalism or anything like that. You're talking about the historic Christian faith. Right. Historic Christian faith. And and one and this is it's a Protestant it's a Protestant project. And one of the benefits of Protestantism is that we can we can differ on 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 some secondary on on secondary issues. And still affirm each other's mutual faith. So a Presbyterian, a Baptist, an Anglican, they may debate uh, important points of theology, but they can affirm each other's um, brotherhood in Christ. And 
part for for America at least, uh, part of the project is to say, well, we can have a, a, a sort of pan-Protestant uh, political order. We can we can see ourselves as Protestants, um, taking the Protestant faith and uh, and I you know identifying with that as a nation together. Part of the reason we know that that's possible in the future is that we did it in the past. Right. Yep. There there was a time in our history where we really were um, a pan-Protestant nation. Right. It was, a, it was a very self-conscious, very self-consciously Protestant nation. And you can see it reflect in the founders, and certainly there were founders who were not Orthodox, but uh, the dom- denominational backgrounds of, of the founders uh, was very diverse. Um, and so, and, and then America, of course, uh, since the founding has, has been, re- was very re- religiously diverse in the 19th century. Um, but at the same time, it, it was wide. Uh, it was it was widely accepted among Americans that we were uh, a Christian country. So when I was a boy, I remember I remember being led in prayer, the beginning in the government school, being led in prayer by a government employee. Um, we opened the day in prayer, and prayer was the last thing to be driven out of the schools. Um, Dabney said, warned that. Bibles, prayers, and catechisms will ultimately be driven out of the schools. And we think there were catechisms in the schools. And the, and the early wave of Catholics, uh, they, the reason Catholics formed their own parochial school system is not because our school system was secular, but because it was so Protestant. It, it was uh, Protestant catechisms, Protestant Bible, so on. And so in living memory, the last vestiges of that were driven out and so the question arises, well, how did prayer ever get in to the school system? Well, it was from that Christian consensus, right? Yeah, it was a, like, it, like I said, it's, it was a self-conception of, of being a Christian nation. And there was also that self-confidence that we are a Christian people and we ought to catechize our kids within public institutions. It's not, religion is not something to be privatized. Uh, it's, it's not something to be left just for the home or just for churches. That we as a people uh, see the good not only not only for eternal life but also for just temporal life. It's good to have a religious people. A well-ordered soul uh, will ensure a well-ordered body politic, uh, and so that was just that was well accepted um, until recently. And 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 it's 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 weird to it, it's it's uh, it's hard for people to imagine that in public schools because so few people ha- have still have that that memory of that but just a few decades ago it was well accepted and it would be odd not to okay. um, have have it like public institutions that are part of um, discipling children in a certain sense um, in in the faith so we've defined Christian we're talking about the historic um, Christian faith in a in a in the Protestant stream that's what we're talking that's what you're arguing for in this book. How would you define the nation part? Yeah. Now, th- this, is, this is definitely the trickiest part. This is also the part where you're easily misunderstood. Um, and I think we should say at, at first that, that, uh, that, that concepts or, or things that, 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 you, that uh, are, are difficult, that, that, are, that, are, that uh, um, you can't define with, with precision or identify with precision, um, you should... You should not expect anything more than what you know that that term can, or that concept can uh, um, 
um, the precision, you know, the, you shouldn't expect more precision than what that, that concept can actually handle. Defining a nation is harder than defining a triangle. Yeah, exactly. Right, yeah, right, thank you. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and I think in, in each set of circumstances is going to be different. So in, in some places, it's very clear that this, this people in this, in this spot have been here for centuries or millennia. Like the Japanese. Yeah. yeah and so that's yeah. just, an, it's, it's clear that there's, that the nation is very much a, um, a relation of blood. Right. Um, but I think just in, in our own experience, the way I approach it in the book, I, I call it a kind of phenomenology of place. The way I approach it is how do we, that as we go through our life, we, we, I, we can, we can identify with other people based upon similarities in culture and a, and a, a national history that we've all participated in. And that admits that allows a lot of, a lot of difference between um, different cultures, people identify different dress, different music, but we've all taken part in this, this national life for a long time. And we can appeal, we can talk about the same events in history, um, that, that as the our same history, struggle our as, our, as our history. Even though there would be difference, I mean, some in the past people kind of talk about maybe kin groups uh, that that you can kind of separate between kin somewhat, uh, somewhat of a relation of blood. But what, I, what I'm not saying, I'm not saying that that every nation is simply an, uh, a relation of blood. That right. every nation is something that comes from people who are related as, as sort of like biological cousins. But a nation is people who are very different, different bloodlines, different ancestry, who have a common experience and have a commitment to this place that they live. And that common experience would include things like language, not, it wouldn't be exclusive, but it would include things like language, culture, diet, geography, history, uh, so forth. Yeah, I, I think a test is really, is if, if something, if, if, a, a, if a certain people are being attacked, who's gonna just join together and who's going to fight that aggressor? Right. Who's committed to this place, this spot of earth, despite you know, differences uh, in, you know, some, in culture and, and uh, you know, accents, and who's going to sign up and who's going to take arms to defend this place? So that's just one example of, if that's true for, for you, and that's true for these people, then they are, they are a nation. Uh, I mean, some, in some ways, like, that's a nation in formation. Oftentimes, like, national struggles come to form kind of a sort of ethnogenesis. Right. Um, uh, but I think that's at least in an early form. If, if you are a people who are going to die for sacrifice yourself for this piece of... So the, according to your definition, America is a nation. Yeah. Okay. Um, and in a, if, we, if we dial down, if we zoomed in, uh, in the biblical strict sense of ethne, uh, the Navajo would be a nation. We could speak of the Navajo nation or yeah. something like that, or tribe. Uh, but, but if you zoomed out, even in biblical times, Paul was a citizen of Tarsus, and he was a citizen of Rome, and he was of the tribe of Benjamin. So you have layered, um, layered allegiances or lay layered experiences. Right. right. So um, if Rome were attacked, Roman citizens would rally, and if your city were attacked, you would rally. And so the term is, when Jesus said to disciple the ethnoi, he's not leaving empires and local tribes out. It, the, there's a range, right? Right, that's right. And, I, and, I, and 
and, and so I've been in the military and uh, you have people who are very, very, who, who love the state and town that they came from. You think of a, a Texas boy who really likes Texas, can't stop talking about Texas. They even call him Tex. Um, and yet he, he signed up for the federal, for the national military to go, to go fight for that country. And I mean, in a sense, he's fighting for Texas, he's fighting for his parents, he's fighting for his friends, but he's, he's also fighting uh, what, for the nation what, itself. What flag is over his unit? Yeah, right. Yeah, he yeah. has the, the American flag on his, on his uh, shoulder. And next to him could be someone from Puerto Rico right. uh, or, or someone who's from, you know, from Puerto Rico, lives here or from Puerto Rico uh, itself. Uh, and they would be same foxhole, firing back, same American flag on, the, on, on, the, on their shoulder. So even though, I mean, that, that kind of broadens the notion of kind of an ethne of a nation, it still shows that, that, that there is a, a we, there's, a, there's a, a sense of kind of this is our land, this is our place, and we're going to join the foxhole yeah. together to go fight for it. And so with that definition or with that, that um, commitment to that being within the range of what you're talking about, that prevents someone from saying that Christian nationalism is simply a dog whistle for white supremacy or... Right. right. I mean, that, that's, that, that's, that's false. And so it's what, what it, it, it's, it's, it's not trying to, it's not some means to, you know, bring back some sort of white supremacy or white right. order. It's just identifying what is, what is true on the ground, what is true. So instead, instead of applying some kind of racialist principle, instead of um, some abstract ordering notion, just w what is, what does experience tell you on the ground? What you, we're, you're playing cards with the hand we're dealt. Yeah. This, this is what we have. Right. And this is what we should be loyal to. And this is what we should receive with gratitude. But it's not just that, but that, like your nation and your, your ethne, it's, it's something that it's, it's not something like it's just a, uh, an abstract term that you can just define and then start breaking up different people groups. Right. Because we all, we, we live in places with others and we have, like I said, we, we, we have similar experiences, we have similar language, uh, we have similar interests, similar goods in mind. We all have a commitment to this place itself. So just in your experience itself, like who are your people? Well, it's the people you go to the coffee shop who look different than you and you say good morning and they say good morning back. It's, it's these people um, who are your, your nation. And the dissimilarities that exist in a nation of north of 300 million people across a continent you're going to have a number of dissimilarities also regional and uh, linguistic and so forth and because you've got this commonality you've got a commitment to work it out talk about it right work work it through yeah i mean and i could talk about that a little bit i mean th this is one reason why i i i uh, i talk about immigration a few times in, in the book um this is one reason why we should be really concerned about mass immigration it's not because of the sort of people who are immigrating to the country, but then in a country like the United States that is already very diverse, who's already trying to sort out like, who are we? It's one of those enduring questions, uh, especially for the last hundred years is who, who, what, what do we say when we say we? Uh, and so I think that this is one reason we should kind of limit Im immigration is that we can sort out kind of who we are, that there can be intermarriage between different people. Uh, and we could come to, you know, these people, uh, share this place, this nation, this history. But if you have, if you have, a lot of, have a lot of new arrivals, you have people who don't, who need to be kind of brought into that, 
or they don't, they're not brought in at all. And so that's one, that's one reason, that's one reason why I kind of oppose, uh, I think we should put a major halt on immigration just so we can kind of sort things out right. and become, have that ethnogenesis that the way we become a kind of a securely solid. So you're not, people. not objecting to immigration streams, but an immigration flood means that we can't assimilate and we can't define right. and we can't accommodate. Yeah, it's, it's not a matter of, you know, like maintain, maintaining white people or maintaining, uh, it, it's a matter of, yeah, we need to have a genesis, as I've said, that brings us together as a people. And that takes time. It takes generations. It takes intermarriage. It takes, uh, it, it, it takes a, um, a, a common, you know, a commitment that says that, that this is our place and we have nowhere else to go. That right. this is, and, and uh, to kind of, and also to see each other in a very, very reciprocal way. That you were born here, I was born here. My father was was at this same piece of dirt, working in this factory, working in that store, alongside your father. So we have those those intergenerational connections that bind us together into a place. Right now, let's move to um, maybe I would call it a, a Christian objection, an objection from Christians. I think it's actually a Gnostic objection, but um, Jesus erases all that. Um, right. Um, if if I love Jesus and you love Jesus and he loves Jesus, then where you live, where you came from, what language you speak is absolutely irrelevant. Uh, uh, in your book, you talk about, uh, uh, let's talk about grace perfecting nature uh, okay. and or grace erasing nature. What, how would you talk about that? Yeah, in relation to this, uh, the the topic of um, kind of cultural difference, uh, I, I think that the grace uh, it doesn't doesn't destroy nature, uh, perfects uh, you could say it restores nature, but it doesn't make uh, everyone the same. The 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 grace does you know the content or the, what's packaged with grace is not this new language that we can talk that somehow someone from a foreign country now can speak the gospel language. Uh, they're going to use their own language. They're going to be preaching is going to be in their own language. The Bible is going to be translated in their own language, and they're they're going to understand each other in that language. Uh, and I mean, it's it's extremely common in the Christian tradition to say that. Uh, I think it was Augustine who said that if 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 you don't know the the language of another guy, uh, uh, someone else, then you're worse than dogs in way in, in, in understanding each other. Like for humans, language is so fundamentally crucial for understanding each other. That if you don't have any overlap in language, you you can't uh, you can't do anything at all together. In fact, you're just going to be hostile to one another, or at least frustrate uh, what you're trying to do. Um, so you you need so in other words, like uh, it cannot be the case that simply being a Christian is enough for you and another person to cooperate in civil fellowship, civil fellowship, and civil life. And achieve the sort of goods that you could if you all knew the same language. I mean, if if uh, I mean, because civil life and politics is a it's a sort of project. It's an ongoing project, and it requires deliberation. It requires um, an, you know analysis, assessment. It requires you just uh, talking with people. It, it's it's a matter of sharing sharing surprises, sharing um, sharing uh, um, wonders, talking about contemplative things. It's more than just can you work together on a factory floor, and in order to do all that, you need to uh, you need to have the same language. Okay. So I mean, and again, grace does not supply that language. And um, so let's talk a, a bit about uh, natural affection. Um, 
the Bible says, honor your father and mother. Uh, it's the first commandment with a promise that your life may be long on the earth or in the land Lord your God is giving you. Does that include your grandparents and your great-grandparents? I, I think, yeah, I think, I think fifth commandment, it covers all this sort of uh, uh, relationships that people have from natural affections to civil relations, even I think even relationship to your pastor. So I think it covers all hierarchical um, relations and, and equality um, and, and equal relations as well. Um, but I think natural relations is really important. Uh, I mentioned earlier that if, if your grandfather worked with some other guy's grandfather in the past, or let's say they both participated in, in a war, you have that connection. Even though you may have no kind of blood similarities, you are both um, in that place doing something together. And so you have that even though you don't have natural affections directly for that other person, in a way you have it indirectly. So your grandfather worked with his grandfather and through that, then you have that connection with that other guy. Um, and in, in a way it's a natural affection. And yeah. so that's, that's why I keep saying like the nation is, it takes time because then these natural relations you had for your kind of blood ancestors actually then kind of permeate out into the people themselves of that nation. And that's how you form that, that we, that, that togetherness. So you're sitting next to someone on the plane and he mentions in passing that his great-grandfather fought at Guadalcanal. Yeah. And your great-grandfather fought at Guadalcanal. You're going to bring that up. Yeah. You're going to say, oh. Right. Um, and so no one is maintaining that those incidental or natural relations, affinities, and connections are superior to the bond we have in Christ, right? right. So yeah. uh, if someone from another country entirely loves Christ, and I do, and I'm talking to a fellow American who hates Christ, I've got more in common on the ultimate issues with the fellow Christian and not with my countrymen, right? So like the, the Apostle Paul was persecuted by his kinsmen. Uh, they hated him, wanted to, kill, wanted to kill him, but he said he'd go to hell for them he loved them, uh, according to my kinsmen, according to the flesh, even though he had more in common with Titus, who was a Gentile. Yeah, so I think that there'd be two very different people who share this, the, the highest good, which is sharing eternal life in Christ. Uh, that, that does have a, a sort of commitment to that other person with regard to, to that good, that highest good. But, but even, even in sharing the highest good, like you say, more in common with Someone that that person you have more in common with is someone you'll be able to um, uh, participate in civil projects uh, in in your civil in in the body politic for the sort of temporal goods right uh, that that you would not be able to uh, to procure or in, in, um, to, to with the person who you just share you only share the highest good because again like in, in order for you to um, to achieve these temporal goods in life, you need cooperation. Cooperation requires some kind of communication. If you lack that means of communication, if you have nothing but sharing the highest good, you can't actually accomplish that. Yeah, so I might have the ultimate destination of heaven that I share in common with someone whose language I do not speak, whose customs I do not know, yeah. whose projects I'm not interested in. You know, all of that's true and vice versa. Um, and so we couldn't function together in a day-to-day -day life and still acknowledge that the ultimate good is something we share. But I can't, I can't function with them unless we work out 
a shared language or a shared project. Okay. Yeah, I mean, just just take. I mean, we're in a building that's under construction. Uh, if in a, in a building where you have construction, if you if if one person's um, you, uh, manning the saw to cut the wood, another guy's uh, uh, hammering. Um, one guy's gonna have to call out measurements. You're gonna have to know. Okay. You, so you have to have that language of measurements, and and so that's just a basic point where if you don't have even that that uh, that commonality in language, you won't be able to complete any sort of project of, of that. One thinks of the Tower of Babel, for example. Yeah, yeah. a building. Yeah, that's exactly a right. building building project. The yeah. Lord interrupted by the simple expedient of yeah. mixing up the languages. Okay, let's um, let's talk about a political. Um, thought experiment here. Um, uh, I'm thinking of Quebec and in Canada and Puerto Rico, statehood for Puerto Rico. Okay, so uh, I would be concerned about and opposed to admitting Puerto Rico as a state, but have no problem accepting Puerto Ricans as Americans and fellow Americans and so on. But I'd be opposed to statehood because it's like an IQ test this doesn't match. It doesn't fit linguistically, right? And and I think of something similar with Quebec and Canada. Uh, you can do it. You can you can put a snail in the salad, and some people like it. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but as a long term project, would you say when the Canadian uh, project was formed, would you say a French speaking province is a great idea and it just shows the cosmopolitan nature of man or would you say i'm kind of dubious about whether that's a long long lasting thing the same thing kind of thing with puerto rico yeah i mean i think in, in canada i i think it, it points to the fact that a lot of modern nation states are sort of small empires in a way there can be different nations and peoples within the same nation state yeah and and, and, and I'm not saying that's good or bad. In fact, my, my, my book is not a defensive nation state. So I, I really don't have any problem with a, a, a sort of empire like that. If you pull it off. Yeah, if you yeah. can pull it off. And, and I mean, often, often they, 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 they do pretty well. Um, it's usually the, a lot of times in like empires, like a smaller people or smaller country, they, they get the protection of the empire. If they're all by themselves, they're yeah. you're taking over. So. A boutique empire. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I do think that, that in the example of a Quebec, they, they, they should have, they, they do, some lawmaking authority so they can order themselves according to their own customs. So if you do have a nation state that has different, you want, want to say different cultures or yeah. nations within, I mean, all these, this language is, makes it difficult, but, but, uh, but that there, there should be or there can be uh, some, some lawmaking authority so that you can establish yourself as a people, as a distinct people within that sort of nation state. Uh, and, and Puerto Rico has that as well. So, uh, and, and I think, I mean, apart from the question of whether it should be a state or not, uh, I, I think at the, at the very least, Puerto Rico, uh, it's good that they have their own like quasi autonomous government. So that, they, because it's a very, very different, uh, very kind of different place uh, that they can order themselves as they see fit. So let's let's talk about the flip side of this. If we if we're advocating for Christian nationalism, and as I hear you talk, it seems like very much the same thing that I've been advocating for under mere Christendom. Mere Christendom being larger 
uh, mere Christendom involving multiple nations that have a shared uh, commitment to Christ, but uh, uh, distinct boundaries, you know, mere Christendom. And But you're focusing on the, the cover of the book is the outline of America, you know, is Christian nationalism. You're, you're focusing on our heritage, our history, our past. So this is a compatible sort of thing. I'm wondering if we have the same shared... Um, uh, rejection of the secular project, the the secular liberal project um, that wants to pretend that there's such a thing as religious neutrality. Yeah, I mean, whether there is or, is or not, I, I don't, uh, religious neutrality, I don't want religious neutrality. Um, and uh, like, like I said, the, the, in a Christian nation saying that they're Christian and the, the ism of nationalism uh, it, uh, of Christian nationalism is them saying we're Christian and our institutions are going to reflect that fact. And it's a, it's sort of self-confidence. So I, I think in America, what we need is we need to look to our history, which is that we are, you know, the uh, recognition of that we are Christian with Christian institutions and be self-confident in that and, and assert that. Uh, and I, I think we, we just lack that self-confidence to, to, to assert that. And, uh, and, you know, it's very it's a it's complicated situation with constitution and interpret you know the Supreme Court and all that, of course. But but just at the very basic, we have to say say no. This is this is who we are and this is what we want. And I and we have we have to we can't be so uncomfortable with the use of of civil power for that end. I think this is when I talked to people about just just the other day. I was talking to someone. I said, "Yeah, a Christian nation is a, a nation acting uh, for its for its own good. You know, for heavenly and earthly good." Like, oh, yeah, I like that. And then I was like, well, this means a civil power is going to enforce that. And then that's where they're like, oh, whoa, civil power. Um, you can't do that. Uh, but that's, that's what I'm saying, is that we, that we ha should have Christian magistrates and Christian governments that, um, that enforce Christian norms okay. uh, on the public, uh, in the public, um, and also ensure that, that public institutions such as schools are, are Christian as well. Okay, so taking the public space in the public, um, uh, in the public realm, I, just a few years ago, I believe it was Switzerland that uh, did not allow minarets, um, prayer, Muslim prayer towers. Um, church bells are fine, church bells are fine, but uh, Muslim prayer towers, which are sort of broadcasting in the public space, uh, you're talking about that kind of thing. Right. Yeah, yeah. That, that that would be right. That would be a sort. Of, that would be Christian national. Yeah. So they they it would insane. That's that's not to say there there you wouldn't allow mosques or synagogues that sort of thing to exist. Yeah, to exist. I mean, I'm not talking about suppressing that sort of thing. But yeah, a uh, something that's public like that uh, that would be that would be inappropriate for a Christian nation to to do that. I mean, I, I should say that. Uh, I say, in principle, you can you can you can suppress that. Uh, I, I I mean, if the Christian people want to allow that, they can. I, I think it would probably be imprudent um, because I, what I'm not saying is that that every na Christian nation has to look the same. We're all very different. The American tradition is much more tolerant than than others, and so uh, as Americans, I'm not saying all of a sudden we're going to you know put heretics to death and all that. But but there are some basic things we can do for well, our society through government that would that would enforce Christian. One, Christian one of the one of the features of Christian civilization is that Christians 
invented the idea of uh, religious liberty. That's our so not religious liberty is not a value that percolates up out of every worldview. You know, um, the Muslim Brotherhood doesn't have that value at all. Uh, Saudi Arabia doesn't have that value at all, and we do. But it's a vestige from our Christian heritage, and we're seeing that the secular uh, now that the secularists are making an aggressive move, we see that tolerance and free speech, that, that's not a value in their system. And, and to the extent that we want free speech and genuine liberty, we need to have structure and form that can only come from Christianity, right? Yeah, I mean, and th this is an important point that, that uh, the idea of religious liberty is, uh, it's not just Christian, I'd say it's also very Protestant. There was the Protestant Reformation, e even, you know, even Calvin, uh, notorious Calvin also said that the conscious is it's uh it's free it ought to be left free from the state and prying into minds and saying do you affirm this do you affirm that and force people to it's so uh, christian truth and uh, becoming a christian is a matter of persuasion it's a matter of one person speaking truth to the other and then assenting and and, and trusting that you know trusting in christ so it cannot be forced. You cannot have a law that says you must be a Christian. And that's not just because it's imprudent and it's not just because it won't work, it's because it's wrong in principle. Right. Uh, and so no Christian nation ever should ever um, have a law that, that forces people into to conversion. Right. Uh, but yeah, and, but from that, over, uh, over uh, centuries since the Protestant Reformation, there, there was this recognition, especially among Protestants, as I mentioned earlier, that look, we're all Christians, and we can all actually get along in in, um, in the body politics. So, I, in the book, I talk about the the um, sort of evolution that occurred from the the, the sixteen the seventeenth century up to the founding American founding, the relationship between the Congregationalists and the Baptists in New England, where, where over time there was a, there was a lot of problems between Congregationalists and Baptists, but eventually Cotton Mather, the, the famous Congregationalist minister, is now preaching an ordination sermon for a Baptist in Boston. And so you, you see this evolution that occurred in this recognition. So, you know, we can actually get we, along. We can work it out. We can work this out. We don't have to be persecuting. Um, and the, the American version of the Westminster Confession, when in 1789, when they um, revised the, the, the British Westminster is much more robust on uh, the authority of the, of the magistrate in theological affairs. Uh, but even the the American Westminster talks about how the magistrate is not to play favorites between churches of our common Lord. Mm, yeah, uh, exactly. So that's the um, that's the American settlement. Yeah, and and the, in the early uh, the, the concern in in New England wasn't that hey these guys aren't Christians. Even when even when the Baptists were there and they were kind of suppressing Baptists, it wasn't. Uh, oh, these guys aren't Christians. I mean, the Quakers were goofy; they didn't think they were Christians. But the the, the Baptists, they they did, um, uh, they were affirmed by the established churches. Yeah, you're legitimate, but we don't want you to have your own churches for baptism issues. And you know, I don't yeah. go too far into that. But but they did recognize their mutual faith, and they said, okay, Baptists, you can actually join our churches. You just can't start your own. Um, but because of conflict, as I said, they eventually said, hey, we can all get along and have our own churches. So. Right. So, so I think that, that we as a Protestant country can have wide tolerance, but still say, no, we're not uh, just a religious country. We are a Protestant country. 
you, and uh, we're going to order ourselves a, a corn of that. Do you think that secularism, the American form of secularism, is in trouble? Do, do you think they're... I, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> we're trying uh, to make trouble for them? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I'll just, I, I think that, that, that Christian nationalism, as I've presented it, is incompatible with secularism. If, and and if, uh, if Christians get serious, then yeah, we're a threat. I mean, we're a threat to, the, to their, their regime in the sense that um, us uh, Christians having power uh, would end that regime. It would end the secularist regime and there would no longer be religious neutrality, which actually isn't the case, of course, that they enforce their own social dogmas upon us that are quasi-religious. Um, but yeah, it would, it would be a it would be an overthrow of the regime. I'm not talking about overthrowing the government. I'm not talking about overthrowing the state. I'm talking about the regime, as in the the people who kind of control the uh, the forces of it's an, uh, our society. It's a it's a genuine threat without being um, an anarchist bomb throwing. Threat. Right. Yeah. Exactly. I'm not yeah. calling for someone to go shoot up right. some. But you are writing. You have written a book that licked your forefinger, and you want to. Went up to touch the giant's eyeball. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he might have he might have an opinion about that, right? Um, so uh, I I know that the the ARCs of your book are are circulating, and there's there's buzz about about it. What do you anticipate being the central pushback um, from for, let's say from fellow Christians? Um, conservative evangelical Christians, what do you think the central pushback is going to be? I think people who are of good faith, who are not just, um, you know, uh, trying here. to call it racist or whatever, I think they, they won't like the idea of um, using civil law to kind of suppress uh, heresy. I think that's one thing. Um, using, they don't like blasphemy, blasphemy laws and I think in general, the, the, the mindset of an evangelical is that the only thing that's Christian is you can't really have a Christian government. Uh, you have Christian churches, you have Christian individuals. So it's going to be this, this way of saying there's only, only those two things can be Christians. You can't really have a Christian nation. Um, you can't have a, a Christian there's, government. There's no such thing as a Christian nation. They right. Yeah. It, it's a, it's a, it's, it's fake. It doesn't, it can't exist in principle. Yeah. Now, but the objection to blasphemy laws, this is a, uh, one of those inescapable concepts. Every society has blasphemy laws. I could go out to Friendship Square here and get arrested within 15 minutes on the, on the basis of what I was saying alone. Yeah. Right. Because we have we don't call them blasphemy laws. We call them hate crimes or uh, you know that that sort of. We have a different terminology for them. But no society can exist without a, an acceptable uh, realm of discourse, right? That's so. That's you're not introducing something new. You're simply saying I would like the definitions to be better. Yeah, yeah, and uh, um, yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. So that there should be uh, that there's always going to be uh, social dog. But there's going to be like today we have social dogmas instead of religious dogmas, and I like, said so they're kind of quasi-religious. And I think those can be uh, replaced, or I guess added to those would be the uh, that you don't blaspheme blasphemy God, um, and uh, and if someone does, that they should be suppressed in some way. I, I think that the problem with that is that, that Christians don't they're uh, they don't get offended by that. Christians get offended by a lot of things, 
that their fellow secularists also get offended by. And those are the things they actually get offended by the most um, in, in a way as a sort of performance to, the sec to their secular neighbors. I, th I think a lot of the outrage Christians express publicly. They take offense on behalf of yeah, their they, they express neighbor. Yeah, it's like a sort of witness. Look at our, our, our morality and then as a witness to secularists um, because they care about these things. But Christians don't care that someone will publicly, they, they, don't, they don't react when, when someone will like publicly um, blasphemy God in, in the in public square or um, on in movies or anywhere. They, they don't they don't care because there's no like one, a, a lot of things will trigger their anger, but not the things that actually concern concern God. So so um, one of the things that we might want to point out is that if if you if we followed your argument and and you were persuasive and we were to introduce this state of affairs and they say they they would object if we allow for blasphemy laws then uh, america would become a totalitarian hellhole right and and so i would say well were, were we a totalitarian hellhole in 1778 or in 1790 or in 1850 when supreme court decisions upheld blasphemy convictions Right. So, um, no, no, our founders fought for freedom and, and we were a free country. It was, uh, you know, old glory is wonderful. But the thing that I'm proposing is that we return to that. Uh, it's not it's not America becoming a Christian nation. It would be America becoming a Christian nation again. Yeah, I, I think it's just it's having the, the will to to assert that through uh, institutions, through society and institutions. Uh, I, I think the problem is that, that there's, an old, there's an old kind of old line that in, in politics, the people who win are the people who care the most. And I think conservatives in general, uh, they, they lose because they, they don't care. I mean, they, they, they seemingly care, they listen to talk radio, they watch Fox News and all that. But they're not the ones running local school boards. They're they're not the ones who uh, actually have power, uh, and they don't actually don't, don't care. Uh, but I think I think Christians should care, and they should care in, in a way that is for um, the uh, for the good of Christian truth and 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 for the good of the church. Now, how would you um, answer someone who says they would grant the point? Yeah, America had blasphemy laws in the 18th century and in the 19th century. But you yourself pointed out how Cotton Mather learned to get along with Baptists. We did make certain adjustments um, and we learned some things. And why couldn't that be one of the things we learned? With like, like non-Christians? Yeah, like with the, yeah, yeah or sort of become some atheist. Essentially evolve into yeah, secularism right. or whatever. Yeah. Can, can we have a tolerance for uh, a little more tolerance than would have been granted in Calvin's Geneva? Yeah, I mean, we get more tolerance than that, but yeah, uh, um, of course, and we did, of course. <laughs> but, but yeah, but w once you go from this pan-Protestant order to uh, this jump to this pseudo uh, neutrality, you're, you're, you've essentially eliminated the highest good from from the civil society. So you've that that is that is a it's a it's not a it's not a, a movement in in prudence. It's a it's an abandonment of principle. And so this uh, pseudo-neutrality, this pretended neutrality is not going to 
simply allow for the um, the moderate Muslim who doesn't believe in the Trinitarian God, you're going to get drag queens in the school library. Yeah. You know, yeah. you you can't. Uh, there's a there's a direct line slide from one to the other. Right. So I mean, in a, in a pan-Protestant order, as I'm presenting it, this is this doesn't mean that you persecute or you uh, discriminate people who are of non-Christian faiths. Doesn't mean you're do anything to Jews or Muslims or even to atheists. Um, but, but yeah, but, but, the, but Christians do not need to say, okay, well, our society has those people. Therefore let's, let's end the, let's, let's end this as a Christian order. Let's no, no longer, it, it, we don't have to uh, implement this neutrality. And, and when you do, I think that as, as you pointed out, it's evident that you get insane uh, moral dogmas, social dogmas that are then enforced upon you as if, as a sort of doctrine. Basically what we're witnessing nowadays is, is like a sort of religious impulse. It's, it's like a, it, it's people who, who, do, who have abandoned religion, who have a religious impulse, uh, who are now using the powers that God has ordained. God, God ordained civil power uh, and using that power to enforce um, just absurdities. But, so the fact that you lose God doesn't mean you've lost your impulse to go on crusades, right? Yeah, so, yeah. So you, uh, the, the, well, the, the, the COVID crusade or the climate change crusade, or the, they're oftentimes driven by a moralistic frenzy and it's a religious sort of phenomenon, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is just good old like Boglinian or Eric Boglin, the idea that, that these people, when you abandon religion, when you, became, when you become very atheistical in principle, you don't lose that religious impulse. It's just channeled in politics. And it's so disordered that uh, you, you do, I, I say in the book that in, in a way, leftists are right in that, that people ought to use the powers of government for good ends. They just have bad, they just have, you know, a bad definition. A bad definition of what the good is. Uh, I mean, like really destructive and absurd notions. Um, but Christians should say, yeah, in, in a way the left is right and we've been wrong, um, in that we should see power as something ordained of God uh, and something to use be used for for good. Why would we retreat and abandon that? why would we be afraid of something that God has ordained for us for our good? to give it over to people who have such disordered loves that they they can't recognize the difference between man and woman. Um, have, you, have you always been, uh, did you come to this realization one day in the shower two years ago? Or have you always been, have you been on a low simmer uh, your, whole li your whole adult life? Or did you, was there a, a moment of, or, ah, look, I, you know what, it, it was just after thinking about like Christian nationalism, it's like this, you know, you know what Christians need is they need the recovery of that will to establish and use the power of, uh, that God has ordained for the good, for their good. And we've become so, we've become so weak uh, in, and so kind of passive with regard to these things that we've let, uh, we've, we've let these moral absurdities just kind of take over and reign over our country. And I think that we, we have the people, we have the numbers. Uh, it just, it's just a matter of convincing people to have the confidence to act. Right. And so th that's why I like the term Christian nationalism, that there has to be a sense of a, a, the nation saying enough, 
we're going to take back um, what this nation, uh, the, take back this nation, restored in, in a way to what it once was. Uh, and and that, so that that's really what kind of inspired me, I guess, in, in the shower to say, right. you know, we, we can we can do this. Um, and, but uh, but looking at your book and as I'm reading it, it's very tightly reasoned. It's very careful and methodical. So it's not when you say take America back. I think you're seri deadly serious about that. But you, it's not a uh, red, white, and blue flyer, superficial take America back. Just you don't you don't want to turn back the clock twenty years. You, you, you're wanting to get down to the foundation. Yeah, I mean, this is not a nostalgic book. It's not about hey, I want to get get back to the Reaganomics or get back to the not liberals in the '90s or, or the yeah. compassionate conservatism of the uh, right. of the um, you know foreign adventurism of the early 2000s. Um, but but yeah, we need to look to the past as as an inspiration. Uh, I, th I think back into the 19th and 18th centuries and beyond, uh, but also recognize where we are today and, and move into the future. Very good. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to click the link in the show notes to pre-order Wolf's book, The Case for Christian Nationalism, today. Mm -hmm.